out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. That sounds very exciting. Thank you, Jim. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. It's the true story. And this is the C86 show. And this is going to be another one of my many specials. As I um, spoke to Steve Druitt, he of the Newtown Neurotics. So this is the interview, unedited and very exciting. It's quality chat. Anyway, um, we had a chat to begin with. Introduce ourselves as you do. And then I mentioned as we started to get into the general groove of the interview um, about the time when I bought the 12-inch single of Living with Unemployment. And this was Steve's response to that fascinating fact. <laughs> Steve, it's going to be over to you. Anyway, enjoy. We During that period, we well, all of, all of the 80s, the distribution was a nightmare. So, you know, it's very difficult to... Um, uh, to get our records and things into enough shops. Um, but the internet's different now because you've got so many other ways of uh, of uh, providing your music. So you're not, you know, you sort of got round the limitations of um, distribution. And, you know, now that um, we're better known, uh, I do actually have physical distribution um, that, you know, that works in a... In, in a modern way in that it will supply vinyl to shops that accept it and um and it and you know it will stream uh the music as well over all of the necessary uh platforms and you, you know you they just take a cut of it so I don't have distribution problems anymore. Which is a huge relief, yes. Well, I, I remember being, I was one of the, you know, I never was in a band, but obviously being a fan, I'd sort of be scribbling on bits of paper, you know, songs that John, or bands that John Peel played, and then yeah. taking them around in my back pocket to record shops and asking for bands, you know, for these records. And, and sometimes you just got such a look of kind of like, who are you? <laughs> it's like, who, what are you, you trying? Know, it's so much easier now because you can, you know, any... Um, show on Radio 1 that plays records, it logs them all, so... Yes, you know, God, I know, because I'm not a big fan of Six Music. Track it down. Yes, and I know, because Six Music will just put what playlist, so I don't even have to listen to the show, I just go, oh, that's an interesting sound and band, <laughs> I'll have a quick yeah. listen, you know. Yeah, I know, it's right. a little bit different, but anyway, look, so is it possible to just give us a bit of a background on your own sort of musical journey, because obviously... You were, I put indie band, indie pop down, I know you weren't indie pop, between 83 and 87, which was yeah. a kind of a glorious years for jingly jangly music before things changed. But you were well and truly formed before that. You were obviously at the punk period. So what was your own childhood and, and sort of bands you were listening to? Uh, am I assuming that um, the, the, the sound is okay and... And, and you're recording. Yes. Your, oh, the sound is magic for Skype. This is good. And there's not even a little well, I've got a piece of microphone here. So, you know, it's not just a little PC one. It's a proper studio microphone. So, Oh, I'm nice. Thinking. Yes. Because yeah. I'm, I'm guessing you're probably a few years older than me. I'm in my mid-50s, by the way. So, um, I don't know. I might be wrong. Yeah. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm considerably older than you. Oh, I'm okay. And uh, I'm, I'm 65. Right. Um, October 29th this year, just gone. Wow, okay, so you're right there. Um, 
Yeah, God, 65, I had no idea. But yeah, so so you obviously were completely listened to a huge different sort of musical yeah. world than, than I did in the sort of the early 70s to that kind of time when you were listening to watching Top of the Pops with great enthusiasm and thinking, yeah, I want to be in Gary's gang and, and all that. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm glad I didn't join that one. <laughs> I'm so glad that wasn't my first single either. It was David Bowie's Space Oddity. Hurrah. <laughs> my first single was um, These Boots Are Made For Walking by Nancy Sinatra. Which is still a classic. It's great, yeah. It's nice to be able to say it's your first one and know that you still love it as much as when it was first released. There's no embarrassment in that. It's a great song with a with a really outstanding bass line. Yes, absolutely. So the bass line is, is, is played by a legend as well, a, a, a woman who worked on masses of hits in the States. Oh, was that Carol somebody? Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that, she played that. I that think it's, oh, God. I mean, my memory's not great, but it's something like Carol Kay that she played on the back. Just literally, she was in the studio every day for mm. decades, wasn't she? And it was like, she yeah. just, and even the, I think the Beach Boys, she was on various kind of classic records of that. And I've heard her talk, and, and she's like, God, you're just so amazing. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, there was a time when, uh, with things like the Archies and the Monkeys, where bands were manufactured, there was a um, a sort of um, urban, not well, yeah, it is an urban myth of the time, was that, that a lot of the pop bands didn't play their own instruments, and they were done, the, the music was played by so-called backroom boys, well, you know, little did they know, people who believed that, that quite often it was done by backroom, background women, not, you know, guys. Um, they, you, she was playing on some of the biggest hits ever and no one knew until recently, really. <laughs> yes. No, I've, I've sort of, I've seen documentaries with her and just, I know there's also a drummer who's one of those really interesting but boring pop facts that I like who's been on something like I don't know 50 number number one singles you know yeah and and I can't remember his name but again he was one of those characters who just seemed to it was like oh we need a drummer yes get Steve you know get Mike or whoever and he'll he'll just do the drumming and and give him 20 quid and he'll be happy <laughs> it was like oh, yeah I'm, I'm also fascinated from you know from those early times about uh, about women playing um, instruments in a man's world and, and I've always had a, a soft spot um, for the Carpenters because Karen Carpenter played a lot of drums on their their hits um, and it's you know really it really I, I don't know how she ever got involved with learning how to play the drums it just so isn't the sort of thing that used to happen then no that's true actually and bizarrely the Carpenters were probably one of the them and Burt Backrack were kind of the soundtrack to my really young days when my mum was probably listening yeah. to Radio 2 and that programme, I don't know, What's the Recipe Today, Jim? Jimmy Young Show. And, and I just, oh, yeah, yeah. I, and I absolutely love the Carpenters, and I still do. And I kind of lyrically think, you know, if you love the Carpenters, this is my theory, you would definitely love Joy Division and the Smiths because it was just all about kind of relationships and loneliness yeah, and it's it heartache. Yeah, you know, it's haunting. All it, of it, even their happy songs were haunting. Well, when you, you know? look, when you read the lyrics, I say goodbye to love, yeah. you think, oh my God, that is, that is, you know, Ian Curtis couldn't have written something as good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. You know, so yes, I, I mean, I just thought the Calvinders were stunning. I just really, you know, I just think 
you know, it's one of those, you know, rainy days and Mondays. It's like, Jesus, that's, you know, how, how people could yeah. put that on and feel breezy and happy. I'll, I'll never know. It was, yeah, it was kind of a weird one. So melancholic romanticness, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Definitely yeah. melancholic. But look, so your musical years yeah. in the late 60s then were, were sort of probably the Kinks, the, the Stones and people like that. Um, not the Stones, not, not, uh, I, I mean, I, you see, everything that we speak about as far as my taste is concerned is all built on, uh, um, on the, in my mind anyway, on a basis of layers. I don't know whether most people think like, or in a similar way, but there, uh, but I like lots of, I listen to every type of music, but there are, uh, in music that I'm, I'm fairly interested in, music that I really love, and there's music that is a part of me, a part of life that is crucially important, as as crucially important as um, air or water. Um, so some things I, you know, I I, I, I might refer to, and um, um. And uh, they would just be quite good, you know. And the Rolling Stones I, never really touched me in uh, in a way that I made them so important in my life. But I do like various of their songs, you know. I, I really enjoy um, Sympathy for the Devil or some of the early ones. But I don't really, I'm not overly interested in much of their output. And um, I can't, I, you know, I've... To be honest with you, I think they're a bit of a, a joke. But um, um, it is difficult for bands to actually still be relevant when you've been going for such a long time. And um, but even in the early days, I wasn't I, I wasn't entirely convinced that I needed them. Basically, because I was in love with the Beatles so much that they gave me everything that I felt that I needed at that time. And um, um, that was my soundtrack in my earliest years, and it actually um, led me to get uh, and some music of my own mastered in um, Apple Studios in Free Savile Row. Right. Um, just as they were preparing to, uh, the Beatles were preparing to to put on their final concert on the roof. I, I didn't meet any of them on that day, but um, I was party to hearing about the preparations that were being made for that while I was there. So uh, I come out of the uh, of the of um, Apple Studios with uh, an acetate of the mu my first music I'd ever uh, recorded, um, and um, and I when the guy had gone out to liaise with the people on the roof about. Uh, piping the sound down into the recording studio. Um, he apologised and sort of said, I've got to attend to this, I'll be back in a moment. I grabbed myself a big uh, fistful of um, Apple um, mastering labels with the Apple symbol on, uh, you know, sort of yes. and copies that had not been used, which I still have to this day, and I'm sure they're worth a fortune because I've never seen any of them offered online or anything. No. But you know you can find you can you can find things like the um, um, Beatles White Album or Abbey Road um, acetates with their names typed onto the same label as mine was. 
you know, it looks very similar. And um, that always gives me a bit of a thrill after, even after all this time. But that was um, that my, my um, musical uh, experience was um, the Beatles. I grew up with them and I went, I grew up and changed as they changed. Um, and it led me into all sorts of areas because of the fact that they, uh, as a band, produced so many different types of music. Um, it, anything they played, then I looked into the, you know, where their influence were, was coming from. So uh, whether it be vaudeville or uh, vaudeville or um, um, rhythm and blues or um, soul or any of those things, um, they were a springboard for me to go off and look elsewhere and even have a guard, actually, because of Lennon's um, involvement with Yoko Ono. So any type of music that existed, I decided to um, to check out. And then I could see the threads that were uh, going through not just their music, but everyone else's. And I found those threads fascinating. One of the things that... Um, the Beatles did for me, specifically John Lennon, was that he radicalised me and um, he made me start to start to look at the world in a different way and to look at um, the way we interact with it and how little we know about how it works um, and how much influence people can have in changing things. That all come from um, my appreciation of the weird and wonderful antics of John and Yoko and uh, the fact that the Beatles were against the Vietnam War and were um, stood up against segregation in the, the, in their concerts, specifically in the United States. So um, from there, I, I, I checked out avant-garde music. I, t I checked out um, radical politics and everything like that. So um, <clears throat> in the end, in the, the late 60s and early 70s, um, I began to actually search out, try to search out um, uh, things that were to a certain degree dangerous or feared by the uh, by the authorities. And then there was, you know, there was things about anti-war protesters, and that led in hippies and free festivals, which I attended loads of those. Um, there was also um, the Yippies uh, was on the David Frost show and they they um, turned on him and squirted water pistols at him. In the the famous Mick, yes, the, the famous Mick Farron. Yeah. Yeah, there's sort of a non-violent, the Yippies done a non-violent attack on him live on air with water pistols. And I love that. I really thought it was great live television. And I, I, I liked the upsetting of the status quo that appealed to be very much. And it certainly was something that I, I wanted to um, experience as much as possible whenever it occurred. And of course that thread later on, when I saw um, the Sex Pistols on the Bill Grundy show, um, I had a, like a memory connection that went right the way back to that David Frost and the Yippies show. And all of a sudden I was sort of back in that uh, mouth wide open laughing at the, you know, at the top of my head at the, at the, uh, um, the cheek of, um, you know, sort of alternative uh, uh, life, people with alternative lifestyles or, or, 
uh, just young and couldn't give a shit. That sort of real life bursting into the um, the sort of sterile environment of the uh, TV studios at that time. So um, uh, that, you know, for me, I understood punk from that moment. It said everything you needed to me. And in fact, it, it was exactly what I was looking for because I got so fed up with rock music at the time i i i was into i, I like the glam stuff and everything in the early 70s and then it went really bad i lost all interest in uh, in rock music and for the um half of uh this from 1975 onwards i sort of I got into reggae quite a lot um and of course when uh, punk happened uh, that was uh, interlinked or sort of joined at the hip with with punk at that time so yeah what's not to like that's exactly yes well absolutely so had you been sort of aware of those things like the what barry miles had been doing in london with the is it it magazine and the 14 hour colored uh, technicolor yeah. dream and all those kind of happenings because there was a lot of happenings weren't there sort of hippie happenings as well as kind of political mm. happenings and obviously you know like i know it's really simplistic looking at the 60s in that way that it's um you know one big happy family and then yeah. you know Suddenly you had the sort of the death of Jimi, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin. You had the Manson murders. And then suddenly the party felt like it had finished, which I know is a bit of a sort of um, the beginner's guide to the 60s. But uh, at the same time, you know, it, the 70s came along and, and I kind of get the feeling that it must have been a bit strange when so much had happened in the 60s to suddenly go, oh, what's happening now? And then you had, oh, look, don't worry, we've got Gary Glitter on top of the pops. I just wondered if that, that was something that you you'd also sort of picked up on? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I felt a bit homeless, to tell you the truth, in the 70s, because by that time I had no Beatles to to look forward to as far as albums were coming out. Um, and, um, you know, the, 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 they had the solo stuff was just the sum of their parts. It wasn't like the, the band. I mean, the band is what made it all. Um, and... Um, so yeah I, yeah, I I like the fact what we were having like musical revolutions every couple of years, and it was a fascinating fascinating time to be um, alive and enjoying music. Uh, I mean, I as I say, I was I was missing the band that I love, but I still got into a lot lot of other stuff. As far as the counterculture is concerned, it's a little bit different from me. It, it, it's amazing how difference a year makes, or something like that, in in terms of. The, the way that, uh, that um, there are culture in the 60s, the cultural shifts come very quickly. You only had to be one year different, and 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 all of a sudden you were into punk, rather, uh, you were into glam rather than punk. Um, and uh, I've noticed that, that some people that have asked me about my musical influences, um, uh, they they have, you know, they tend not to rate the Beatles, but then I found out from asking them about it is that they were too young to appreciate them at the time and when they connected with music when they were a little bit older it was the first band that um that they connected to that was the one that they love the most now so um if if you got into music after the Beatles had split then you're less likely to actually adore them than if you um i don't i'm not saying it's impossible but 
for people who were around during their times, if you were around after the Beatles, you tended to like everything you heard better than the Beatles. Um, but and, and it's a bit like, you know, um, what was it when the, um, uh, if, if a chick sort of bursts out of an egg and sees you, the chick thinks you're... Oh, yes, yes. And that's what happens with music. As soon as you connect and click with music, the thing that drew you in is going to be the best thing you've ever experienced. I think the, the only difference about these things in the end is the staying power of the music overall. And obviously, if you're such a cultural influence as the Beatles, you're, you're likely to actually still be going and still being looked at and reevaluated years after um, many other bands, particularly, <laughs> I'll be a bit naughty and, and joke, um, you know, uh, the Glitter Band or maybe Gary Glitter, you know, the... Um, it's a bit different because um, because of what happened with him and what he got up to. Uh, he certainly erased himself right out of musical history almost. But there are lots of bands these days, you know, from the 60s, you never hear anybody getting back into. Yes, I know. Pop, you know, it's, they really it, have. They, uh, if you've got Spotify and you know of these bands way back in the past, you can look them up and you'll find their stuff there. But... But God, you know, most of them. When I do hear of something, what happened to them? I mean, they were, they, they had a couple of pits, and yet have never heard a revival or a peep or anything out of them. Yes. So you know, but yeah, the uh, going back to what I was saying, um, the with my um, experience in uh, of the counterculture, I was a little bit young for the for the big explosion of uh, of. Um, Carnaby Street and then turning into the first phase of the hippies. Um, I didn't go to the big events at um, Alexandra Palace um, and a few other things, but I did get involved with, I did get involved with things sort of around that time. I mean, I, I was hanging out, I, I hung out on, on uh, quite a few occasions at the Roundhouse. Um, I was uh, I was on the Oz March uh, with Lennon and, and uh, Yoko when they uh, Oz magazine was being taken to court for, for um, um, obscenities. Obscenity, yeah. Ruby, it was Ruby. It was Rupert Bear, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, Rupert the Bear. Yeah, um, I, I, that was sort of some of the first demonstrations in in um, Central London I got involved with. Um, I. Um, uh, what else was there? There was some. Oh, um, the Hyde Park concerts. I saw. I think maybe it was the second one, Blind Faith concert. I didn't go to the Rolling Stones for reasons I mentioned earlier. I wasn't that bothered. Um, yeah, I went to a few there. I can't remember them all now, but um, there were. Uh, oh yeah, that was the other thing. Um, uh, my first festival was the Isle of Wight with Hendrix and everybody. You know, that was... That was pretty, that was pretty good, that one. <laughs> it was like... Yeah. That, you, you, I mean, what a line-up. And because um, uh, at the time, um, they, they, there was a buzz about these bands, but you didn't... I had no conception that they were going to be legendary for so long. Um, and the other thing is, you just took it for granted that we would always have... Um, musical revolutions every five minutes it was you, you know it's very uh took everything for granted like that's a really good band okay what's next and i sort of got into a complacent attitude that 
that I thought there was a youth uh, revolution every couple of years. So I started waiting for the next one after, um, I don't know what it was, after the 70s. Uh, and then there was a few other things, including um, um, glam. And then I thought, hang on a minute, there's got to be something else. I'm waiting for the next one. There was like a bit of a pause. They were overlapping one another, these things, up until this point. Yes, this to, is true. To, to my perspective, anyway, it seemed like there was a pause when there was nothing. And then there was punk. Um, and there have been things since there. There's been hip-hop. There are things that happen, it must be said. But actually, they were so, happening so quickly in the 60s, they overlap one another. So, um, so going back, so you were doing a musical band, though, obviously in the sort of 1970 with, you know, when the Beatles were on the roof playing. Well, not a band, no. I was, I was um, uh, uh, a bedroom musician. Right. Uh, and a friend of mine had um, recording equipment in, literally in his bedroom. I, I I was trying to learn guitar at home in my bedroom, and I I um, because I couldn't play um, m couldn't play very well, and I didn't know uh, I had no real skills in playing the instrument. Um, I uh, decided that um, that the easiest way to create uh, to play the guitar was not to try and show off skills in imitating someone else's music, but to uh, to create my own, because if it's my own, then I know what I'm doing with it, and I'm not trying to second guess how somebody wrote something. So immediately I got a guitar, I started writing my own songs. Um, you know, they were a bit rough and ready, um, but they were sufficient for me to uh, uh, take up an offer from my friend, a guy called John Mortimer, uh, who had recording sort of reel-to-reel uh, recorders in his bedroom. He was an enthusiast for, for recording equipment. And so um, I started doing stuff in there and I learned a bit about um, overdubbing and things like that. And in the end, I had an album's worth of material and um, no idea at all about how um, you go about trying to get it to the ears of someone who could open up uh, the doors to the recording world. Uh, I hadn't got a clue. But on a technical side, my mate, John, he, after recording, he said, you know, you can make um, albums, you can make one-offs, you can go down and to a mastering studio and master your music to a disc. And um, I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. Actually have a record, that's a coolest thing there is i mean that's got to be the next stage so that's well when we was looking at the, the mastering studios we found that there was one in free savile row and i thought it's got to be there we've got to go there so we had this thing made and oh, i can't remember how much it cost but you can imagine having a one-off like that um it i did go back i had a second album cut there as well but um the uh i even had sleeves made from them. I'd come across a friend of mine who was a graphic designer and she um, uh, she um, done a complete design for both of the albums. Um, Acetate Memories was was the name of the album I did first and Portrait of Time was an avant-garde album that I did after that. Um, and it was like I had everything there apart from 
mass production and and um, distribution. So um, I basically, you know, started the record, started off at the uh, production process uh, that an indie label was going to be doing later on. So if so, if I'd have got a bit of distribution together and mass produced them, I would have started one of the first indie labels. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, but I didn't. I, I didn't go that far with it. I didn't really. I'm still didn't have the wherewithal or the contacts. Um, if I'd lived in London, it might have been easier. But in Harlow, it was like um, you know, sort of uh, living on an icy planet, orbiting a, a, a star system <laughs> so far out from what was going on in London. Yes. Uh, well, absolutely. So then, yeah. slightly fast forwarding to the, the beginning yeah. of the band, which was trundling on sort of past 77 to, to yeah. 79. So were you then sort of, because obviously there was that period of time between that and then sort of forming a band. So did you, was it, the, you know, the punk, you know, thinking, God, we've got to do this. I've got to, you know, were you still playing guitar and writing songs? No, no, I gave up. I nearly sold my guitar. I didn't actually sell it in the end, but... It was a, it's a, you know, it, it, it was a proverbial, um, uh, I was a proverbial person who thought they'd try their hand at guitar and then decided that it was too difficult and stuck the guitar under the bed to gather dust. Um, and I wasn't playing anymore. And also I was, um, um, I, I was having my first relationships and my first girlfriend who, who I adored, um, she, I sort of started going off her because she didn't seem to be interested in in my music, which I was half thinking about starting up again, and still had this urge to do something. And I, I in my mind, I was uh, I, I got the vibe from from uh, other men that once you settle down, you can't do anything. That's your life finished. And it's nonsense, but. That's what I thought at the time, and I was saying to her, "How would you, you know, what, what, how would you fancy it if, if I, you know, started playing music and was traveling around the country?" And she wasn't that that keen <laughs> on it at all. And I suddenly realised that if ever I was going to do that, um, I don't think I've got the right girlfriend for it. So uh, eventually, I, you know, we 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 grew apart due to musical differences. I I went <laughs> musical and she didn't. So. Um, or she didn't want to be a second fiddle to a band, and I don't blame her. You know, it, it, it takes a certain um, uh, woman to to be interested or put up with that sort of shenanigans. But um, yeah, so in the end, I, I was keeping uh, any chance of um, of uh, um, settling down with a girl. Um, I mean, that, that particular girlfriend wanted us to. Uh, moving to, you know, to a flat together and it was all getting a bit serious and I didn't want those ties because I, I had a feeling that it wasn't time to call quits on it. It wasn't time to, to um, that I, I dropped the idea of this dream a bit too early on. Something was nagging at, at me that, um, that you, I, there's no, this is no time to draw a line under that completely and that's why I didn't sell the guitar. Um, so by the time... Uh, the Pistols appeared on um, the T Today program. Um, I wasn't playing music and hadn't done so for a year or so um, and felt that I was a failure in that and I hadn't managed to, 
to get my skill level up hardly at all. In fact, I just sat in my room trying to play and thinking, this is shit, what am I doing? You know, and then putting it down again and thinking, I've got better things to do. You know, I've got other distractions. Um, but, um, you know, I tried to learn the guitar before that. I tried to learn the guitar whilst I was still at school by coming into school on a uh, Saturday morning. My mum would give me the money for the lessons and I'd go into school and and, and try and learn guitar there. But I'd spent five days at school before that and I really, really didn't like going back into school on my Saturday mornings. <laughs> and, uh, yes. and, uh, I, she would give me the money. In the end, she, she would still give me the money to go to the lessons and I would go with my mate up to the town centre and, and uh, sit in a wimpy bar and have milkshakes and burgers from the money she gave me. I sneaked off. I gave up. And uh, one day I was telling my mate, mate how great it was um, that my mum gives me money. She thinks I go to guitar lessons, but in fact I go, I go out and spend it on um, food and drink. And um, and then I found out she was standing behind me, so I got caught out. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, then I tried to do it on my own, uh, and that didn't work. And it was really sort of getting to the point where I had to make my mind up on to accepting that I was never going to do anything with it, or I was going to have another go. And then that's when I saw the Pistols on the Today programme. And I still had the guitar, but really I needed to find some people to um, to play with rather than trying to do it all on my own. So um, I needed to, uh, to um, try and find some like-minded souls. And I found a few people. And so, you know, I for the first time ever, I got out of the house with the guitar um, and started playing at um, uh, well, hiring a school hall or a school classroom um, and get together with some people and starting to play. So um, that was that was the first thing. And, uh, and after I had done that for a little while, the people I played with, they fizzled out. Uh, I can't remember what happened at all. Um, I think the the main guy, another guitarist, he was into other things. Um, and uh, I think he was into weightlifting or something and he wanted to go off and do that. So we just sort of split. So I was now thinking, what am I going to do? And um, just as punk exploded, a band formed in Harlow called The Sods. And they were the first band to... Of people I knew from school who never picked up an instrument in their life. And I thought, how have they stolen a march on me? How is it they're now in a punk band, they're getting gigs and they've got a manager and they're playing gigs? Where did I miss that? Where was I when this happened? So I started hanging out with them and you know, it was really great fun actually to be bundled into the back of the van with them and sort of help them like their gearing, like being a roadie or, you know, just helping out, making sure if something fell over, put it back up. No one would said, you want to be a roadie? I just ended up doing it. And, you know, getting getting into um, uh, student unions and, uh, and going to weird and wonderful places was fantastic. And the guys in the band said, look, Steve, you know, why don't you form a band? If you do, you can start supporting us. I thought, ah, oh, that's interesting. 
So I thought, well, they just got it together out in the blue like that. Um, I could pick anybody. It doesn't matter. I don't have to look for musicians. This is the thing about punk. You just get one or two chords going and a bit of bashing around and then learn your skills live in front of people. And it will accumulate, your skills in it will accumulate as you go along. And it's far more fun playing with other people in front of people, as rough and ready as it is, than sitting in at home making sounds and thinking, am I ever going to get any better at this? Because when you're playing live in front of people, it's it's an experience in the round. And you go up and... And you know you you uh, get your courage up to start playing in front of people, and then you 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 have a really good time, and you you have a scene that you get involved with, and you see people who you never met before who come along to the last gig, and they liked you, and you think, really, you liked us? That was awful, <laughs> <laughs> but not in their ears. I no, mean, it's, what, it's what you give out on stage. I think that adds a lot to do with it as well as just your instruments. Yeah, and then create something unique that people. I mean, the whole skill of it is actually doing something that reaches out and touches the person in the audience by whatever means. Yes, and um, that is what the makings of a band. Because if you go up on stage and nothing comes out to the audience, even though you may be great musicians, um, it's not. It's going to be hard work getting an audience. It's going to be really hard. But even if you're not the best musicians in the world, if there's a certain spark that people like, they come along and they see you again. And that's what happened. Yes. And did you, um, obviously you got your sound together. And then, you know, at that time, there was obviously the great sort of um, political shift in 79 with Margaret Thatcher. And then, you know, because that early 80s period, I remember there was a lot of obviously unemployment and a lot of people signing on. And there was the job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance, which people got into because you could Mm. have a year being self-employed, but, you know, claiming the doll, but at least it didn't sort of register on the figures. And then you had the Falklands and then the miners. So were you sort of, was your songwriting really developing instantly alongside the political headlines that were happening as well? Not initially, because um, the band were around for maybe not a whole year, maybe eight months or something before Margaret Thatcher came to power. And I had no idea about them. I mean, to me, I, I was um, uh, I didn't I was dismissive of politicians and wanted nothing to do with them. Um, I, well, I did actually um, briefly belong to the Harlow Anarchist Society, but I, I have to say it was probably more of a curiosity than a, a belief in in um, pushing against the fighting the system. Um, but the um, but I was sort of um, of the of the type of at the time the type of writer who would write about more generalised things, um, expressing my politics through the through, it's sort of embedded within the lyrics, but the lyrics weren't um, uh, particularly or overtly political, um, and um, and uh, yeah, I had a row with my parents uh, when, when I was living at home because in my room they wanted to put up a, a Labour um, poster 
And although I didn't have anything against Labour, I just said that I, I was against all politicians. I hated them. Um, and I, I was, you know, spending time in the alternative culture, which tended not to vote for politicians. Yes. But um, I, I, I um, round about that time, I managed to get a flat and I moved out of my home, and it just so happened to be around the time that uh, Attila the stockbroker, as he was going to be known a little while after um, I met him, um, he needed to um, to have somewhere he could stay until he moved over to Belgium. So um, I said, well, you can spend, you know, I'm just moving into this flat. You can come and, uh, and place yourself there for a while you know, for a couple of weeks while you sort yourself out. I ended up um, sharing this flat for 10 years. <laughs> so, um, from um, our, our friendship, uh, Attila said to me, look, you know, uh, you're, you're, he's, he, you know, he, he, um, come, he moved to Harlow and then found various bands, including the Neurotics, was really getting into the Harlow music scene. And he said, you know, I think your band's great. He said, um, I think that, you know, the stuff you write is brilliant. He said, but I think what you need to do is express your politics more in them. Um, I was actually, you know, writing songs about, at that time, I was writing songs about uh, philosophy. Um, as I say, not not um, uh, overtly within the songs, but, um, no, I suppose, you know, at times I did. I wrote... Uh, at that time, I wrote a song that eventually appeared on uh, our, the Neurotics' first album, Beggars Can Be Choosers, called My Death, which is about the, um, based around the myth of Sisyphus, where uh, a man is condemned to roll a boulder up a mountainside till he gets to the top, and it rolls down the other side, and then he will go around and push it back up again. And, and that, that song deals with the way I felt that that's how my life was. Um, and it, it struck, you know, and that's the sort of thing I was writing about. But he was saying, that's great. I love that. But wouldn't it be good if you'd done that sort of quality of writing and reflected the politics of the time? So I said, OK, well, where the fuck am I going to do that? But it came, you know, sort of writing about politics came very easily because the next thing we know... Um, Thatcher was in power and uh, the first thing that happened I was on the verge uh, we were on the verge of releasing our first single and we'd scraped every penny that we could possibly get together because none of us had much at all to um, uh, to get our first single released and uh, we'd also borrowed some money um, Big Barber who was our drummer at the time his dad gave us some money so we, we sent the money off and got the single into production and uh, Thatcher come to power and immediately slapped on VAT on uh, top of this, um, effective from midnight when she come into power. So in the end, the pressing plant wouldn't release our records to us until we'd paid the additional VAT, despite the fact that the order had been made before she put it on. Any outstanding orders... After she come to power, meant that that VAT had to be paid. So we were put into another 
situation of having to claw more resources together to just to get our single out. And we had a schedule we needed it out by. You always do when you, you have a single that you want out. You start advertising it, you know, and talking about it to friends and local papers and things like that. So it just delayed it. It was intolerable. And so from the very moment she took power, we hated her guts. Yes, that was... <laughs> so that obviously was where you sort of thought, I've got a, the next song, Kick Out the Tories. No, <laughs> there's another story about that. We, we were scraping around for any gig that we could possibly get. You know, building a band and an audience up. Building an audience up and, and, and gigs in a town where there's no virtually nowhere to play is very difficult. And li- little did we know that we were about to, under- to undertake the most difficult thing that any new band could take on, and that is trying to build an audience. It is really, really difficult unless you have luck on your side and certain things click together. If they don't, then you're left with having to do it brick by brick, it's, you know, and and try anything you can do to get your name around. Um, so uh, um, we were taking any gig we could, anything at all, and one of them was by, uh, was set up by the TUC, and it was called Kick Out the Tories, and they wanted us to play. So I decided that um, you know that this would be a good opportunity. And it would express, you know, the gig would be political, which expressed my new focus on the way that we were writing and the direction we were going in. And um, and then I thought, well, you know, it would be good if I had something that could address these politics more than the songs I've already written, which is more about getting pissed and taking drugs and um, and girl, you know, girlfriends and losing girls and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I've felt that I might embarrass myself singing that sort of thing, uh, a, a rally like that. So I thought I'd better get a song together. So in 1979, I think it was, um, I thought, well, well, I'll do a song called Kick Out the Tories. And it just so happens that I had a song that I'd written um, very quickly for a, a Christmas Eve gig the previous year. And I wrote a song that was blocks of chords put together so that I could sing some nonsense about Christmas over the, over the top. I don't mean in traditional Christmas ways. I mean by being anti-Christmas and sweary and, um, you know, and, um, and not giving a toss about Christmas. So, And I didn't even write the lyrics. While I was playing the song, I made them up as we stood on stage. I made them up as I went along, and it all involved... Um, drinking lager, the lyrics all involved drinking lagers and smoking mulberry and, and nonsense like that. And it, it was a one-night one night performance. It wasn't meant to be a song. It was just a piss take, really. So when it come down to the... A year later, it come down to this Kick Out the Tories march, I decided that I needed to get a song together to match it very quickly. So I took a chord sequence that I'd used for a Christmas song and then wrote some lyrics to go over the top of it and they needed to be generic and simple for everyone to be able to get into it um and then we were going to play that gig and much like what happened the year before i was going to scrap it 
and use the chord sequence for something else another time. So keep it's it's um, recycling actually before there was any recycling. And the idea was to recycle the chords to any particular theme or uh, benefit that we um, undertook. We'd have that chord sequence for that, but it never really got any. It never really took off. Took off on that. I put the the. I was about to put the chord sequence aside and forget about it uh, when we got tremendous amount of feedback on the first live performance of Kick Out the Tories, and uh, it was such a sort of uh, um, a game changer, even in those very early days, um, that I thought, well, we better you know carry on doing it at least for a bit longer, um, and it ended up being our third single, and also it. Funny enough, um, it was Kick Out the Tories that um, broke us as far as um, people from all over the country knowing who we were, let alone the rest of the world later on. But um, uh, the, the thing that we needed and the thing that we eventually got was a break. And the break was that I recorded Kick Out the Tories for a, a benefits tape and we recorded it in a friend's studio. It was done for free. It was just a muck around. And I sent it to Sounds. And then Gary Bushell wanted to know more about the band. He loved the song. And so that. And um, and eventually, um, well, that and previously, our first two singles had been played by John Peel. So he was beginning to get into the band. Um uh, we were beginning to be known outside of our own town, and then we started getting music press interest from Kick Out the Tories, and Kick Out the Tories then uh, defined us at that time uh, and enabled us to go on to do lots of other things. In the middle of um, the 80s, we'd been playing it so much, and we had what we considered to be far better material. Uh, you know, sort of, as a writer, I would like any writer, I think, uh, is disdainful of any song that actually comes too easily because it felt like it was a swizz, you know, it was a, a, um, a just a, a, a an occurrence. Um, so I didn't rate it that much, um, but everyone else did. And after a while, me and the rest of the band sat around and we said, you know what, we've been playing this for ages and... Um, I think we should leave it now and give enough room for our new material coming. We, you know, well, obviously we wanted to be creative. We wanted to do new stuff, and kick out the Tories was like a, you know, a bed blocker. It was just sat there. We had to play it each time, and um, and it, it was stopping newer material coming in on that slot of our live performance. So we gave up doing it, and then we got harangued from one end of Britain to the other when we didn't play it until. Um, uh, we were so harassed by it that we decided to put it back into the set and we still do it to this day it you know we could never dream of leaving it out of the set yes this is this is that's a throwaway song <laughs> that's your high it's like hi-ho silver lining and Jeff yeah Hill, isn't it really it's yeah, like well not quite as bad as hi-ho silver lining <laughs> um i'm not embarrassed by kick out the tories jeff beck is embarrassed by I house silver lining because it's got the 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 most um, weediest dopey guitar solo ever <laughs> um, by someone who went on to you know to 
his reputation is on how well he played guitar. Um, but, you know, I mean, having that play at parties all the way through the 70s and onwards, it's just like, oh, no. At least, you know, I'm, I I dissed Kick Out the Tories until I got it. You see, I it took longer for me to get it than the audience. Eventually, I realised that its strength is in its, um, in its uh, simplicity and that I'd made a, a conscious decision not to mention who the Tory leader was who I was haranguing within the song because I had this crazy idea that we might need it later on. <laughs> I had this crazy idea that the Tories, even if they were kicked out, might pop their heads up again and come back again. So I didn't make, mention Thatcher in it, which virtually every anti-Thatcher song was anti-Thatcher, anti-Maggie, Maggie this, Maggie out, Maggie shake it all about um and um i wanted something that that you know that could be uh, uh brought out whenever it was needed and um and uh and so you know we, we after all these years it still defines what we do and our outlook and and also it is uh that like wanting to read ourselves of, of um of Tories has been a central theme for the disaffected, for the people who, are, who um, have, have, uh, have fought to retain the society in which um, that cradled their early years and wanted to see other people have those opportunities as well. But we spent the entire 80s and, and onwards to now watching it being dismantled in front of our, our eyes making us feel guilty in a sense that we were the last generation to be able to um, uh, uh, to express ourselves and live a life that that was um, uh, that, that that had hope in it um, a life in which people could define themselves and better themselves and come out of it um, having been nurtured by the system that, that you grew up in rather than you being just uh, profit fodder, work fodder, get out there, you know, work for nothing, give me my due as the, uh, you know, the, the uh, Tory, the Tory sort of mindset is that the, the rest of us are just here to provide their comfort. Um, and, you know, it's, it's slipping back into the very early days when there were, uh, there was a rich elite and everyone else had absolutely nothing. No, yes. Because but... <clears throat> I noticed, because one of my theories that I got from doing all these interviews, most bands have this kind of a five-year narrative of getting together and, you know, having 12, 18 months kind of making a sound and then a single and John Peel played it and then the John Peel session, you know, they get that first album and things are going quite well. The second album's often not so great. And then if anybody ever seems to tour, tour America, that often ends badly for most bands who yes. kind of come back completely wrecked and right that's it i'm gonna get a day job um but you did last a bit longer you you almost made it to 88 so were you did make it to 88 almost made it to the end of 88 almost made it to the end did you also start sort of getting fatigue and also all the usual things that come up with being in a band well to a certain extent um the the thing about us is that that 
much much as a, a lot of people, you know, sort of controlling type uh, songwriters want to do everything themselves because we've got, it's got to be just so. Uh, I ended up doing everything because it was the only way things were going to work. Um, I was writing. I'm the main man. We're a free piece. If I don't write, if I leave, you've just got two people. I mean, you know, it, it it's um, it's as a free piece, we're working at our lowest common denominator, as it were, and um, and it did mean that you know that there was. We didn't know how to do anything, so we started doing it all ourselves. And we, you know, we we started our own label, and um, we couldn't work out how we could get gigs on a regular basis. And then when we did actually get an agency, um, they were totally useless. And we found out all the contracts we'd been signing with the live agency were worth nothing. When a gig was pulled, it was just so much bits of paper, and they weren't interested. So. You know, we went through a lot of times of, um, uh, of doing that, and it was fun, but it was burnout fun. It was like we was doing that stuff, and I was, you know, I've talked about unemployment. I've talked about the effect of unemployment on, on people and on culture and our society, but I, in fact, worked all the way through that. You know, our, both members, both other members of the band were unemployed, but I was never unemployed. Um, I just carried on doing a very hard, low-paid physical job all the way through that. And I had to do that and do everything else. So basically, you know, we'd go out and play a gig in uh, Newcastle. We'd play the gig and then we'd be awake all the way through the night um, because we were vibed up and the driver would get us back to Harlow and we'd dump the gear back in my flat and then I would have a cup of tea and a wash and then go out to work with no sleep. And uh, a lot of our touring times, all the touring was done on annual leave for me. Um, and um, I, 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 it was like I, I was burning the candle at both ends. Not only was I not getting any sleep, but we were, we were uh, as far as our music was concerned, was politically very serious. Um, but our uh, private lives after we come off the stage was absolute we were absolutely stupid idiots most of the time you know it was just like we um we sh we got rid of the, the the stress of the tension and the exhilaration of playing on stage by just acting the fool all the time and we had this um very interesting juxtaposition in uh um zurich when we played with um uh, the toy dolls and um, the toy dolls were really stupid on stage and we were really serious and then after the gig uh, we wanted to go out on the town and go to clubs and get absolutely shit-faced and the toy dolls uh, sipped um, sort of a half of uh, lager top uh, with their meal at the restaurant and then went to bed <laughs> <laughs> you know, and when we were sitting there talking, they were very, very serious. So we were sort of, you know, we tended to not want to come across as uh, as pope-based serious politicos. And we we were a very close band, and we had terrific sense of humour. So we balanced what we used to do regarding our aggression and seriousness on stage by being, um, you know, sort of completely outrageous um when we come off stage and we just 
we spent our entire evenings laughing our heads off. We was, you know, the band had such a great communal humour that it, just playing, playing wasn't just it, it was what happened afterwards. Um, and depending on where we were, sometimes I, I couldn't wait for the gig to finish because the best bits were yet to come. Wow, you must have built up one hell of a following with your fans, though, because they must have loved that kind of, you know, being able to sort of get close to the band. Yeah, um, I mean, we we try not to be aloof. Um, I did have a bit of a trouble in, uh, uh, I had a bit of trouble in those early days, well, through, through the first phase of the neurotics, because there was a part of me that did take it too seriously, and I was a perfectionist. I was sort of the person who could never actually reach the heights of the levels that I wanted to be at. Um, and I couldn't perceive properly how people could enjoy us. Um, and um, actually, later on, I decided that I was taking myself too seriously and actually um, I was missing out on some of, you know, being in the moment and I needed to do that more. So these days I tend to be a lot... Uh, more sanguine about things, but I used to suffer from incredible nerves before I went on stage, and it really wound me up. Um, and of course, you know, coming off of stage and then being funny and and enjoying that was was a tremendous help. It, it allowed me to relax more. But these days, when we play, I'm more rela- the, the the performance is still the same, but I'm not getting quite so nervous. And anyway, I'm. I've had many years of experience now not to, to let the nerves get to me, but... Um, um, well, it's still quite... You still have to be... You're the person who can be there in front of a crowd, behind a mic. You know, you're not the person at the bar ordering a drink. I always remember David Byrne from Talking Heads sort of hmm. sort of talking about his kind of nerve and just saying, well, you know, it's, it is a different thing. You're not that person. But then did you did you have a moment at the end of 88 where you all sat down and said let's let's call this a day let's call this you know the end to quote jim morrison no but i thought we, we you know we got on so well that i thought there'd be a natural dissipation of um enthusiasm for the band uh, and i'd probably recognize when it was coming to the end um but it worked out in a different way i mean colin uh, dread our bass player um he was suffering from ill health while we were on tour. Um, he had asthma and lung troubles. And um, as we grew older and doing this rock and roll lifestyle, um, he never had any money. So all the food and drink he bought was, was cheap and not very good for him. Um, he had a stomach disorder as well that we didn't know about, which... Um, you know, sort of played a part in his demise. Um, but in those days, it wasn't really a big thing, but it did mean that we, you know, we often afterwards think, D- have you seen him eat anything today? Right. No. You know, no, he would go, I, you know, he'd get up late like the rest of us and we'd been drinking all night and getting out of our face and in the morning he didn't fancy breakfast and then... We'd end up sort of not being able to get lunch because we'd been on the road, and then uh, and then we'd get to um, to where we played, and we'd get some food, and he'd eat, but you 
never thought of him as being a big eater. Um, we were having so much fun um, that you tended to not notice that that was going on. But after a while, we realised that he wasn't looking after himself that well. Um, and he began, you know, to, to have periods of ill health. Yes. And then eventually, when we had a tour of East Germany coming up, uh, he got pleurisy and um, uh, and he wasn't recovering. And we were either going to have to call off the tour or um, uh, find another bass player. And we waited as long as we could. And in the end, I made an executive decision. I went to see Connie and I spoke to him. He wasn't any better. He could barely get out of bed. So I told him that, you know, that we were going to have to take another bass player on tour of us, which must have broken his heart, really. But um, but we were so all for one and one for all that the idea, uh, he probably hoped that we would cancel and be, you know, not go. But in the end, um, tours of East Germany don't come by very often and we couldn't, um, we couldn't lose it, that opportunity. So... In the end, uh, we, I made the decision that we were going to go with another bass player, and we got uh, um, uh, a guy called Mac who learned about 25 songs in in three days because we were having to do two sets. So it was a lot of songs that had to be learned. It wasn't just 45 minutes on stage. Um, and after we come back and he was recovering, he spent so much time at home in bed that in the end he decided that touring and the rock and roll lifestyle wasn't going to help either. Um, so he thought, uh, you know, I'm going to go out on a high. While the band's still sort of making great music and all that, I think I'm going to call you a day. So he told me he was going to do that. And I said, of course, Colin, you've got to think of your health. Because he was like claiming he was going to give up smoking as well and try and lead a better lifestyle, but he didn't give up smoking in the end so it was meant to be a big change where he could make a change and yes. not be um, uh, tempted into smoking and drinking and overdoing things so he left the band and then I started thinking about okay so now Colin's gone why don't we do something different so I started thinking about mixing punk with African rhythms and um, at that point because Simon had been with us uh, for ten years, uh, he thought, "Well, if I'm if I'm if we're not going to be the, ne the neurotics, and I'm not sure whether I can do this African stuff, I don't know. But actually, before we get into it, this might be an opportunity for me to pull out and uh, go my own way and see if I can make a living out of you know being a session musician or or getting uh, an audition in a band that." got a record deal and you know got a lot of money who knows yes so i i don't you know i don't i don't sort of i did i didn't feel upset by that i thought well yeah simon if this is the way it's going then that's fine because you take an opportunity to make a change and do something um and i'm not lugging a band around who you know who are not into it if you want to go off and do that then that's fine and then i'll work out something i can do um with fresh people and won't be the neurotics we'll call it a day on that we've all decided we're not going to do it that'd be the end of that i'll go and do another band and um and so you know after that it, it you know, we um we decided um to split up with no animosity whatsoever 
So um, the only thing we said is that we'll do a farewell, a short farewell tour of a few dates, and we'll have Colin come up um, as a guest appearance. So that's how we saw 1988 out. Um, and the, the final gig was on my birthday, the 29th of October, 1988. And when I walked out of the Pullman Greyhound, where the gig took place, I decided, you know, I looked back in there as I was the last one out the door and thought, just walking out of your, your last neurotics gig. I thought, well, you know, it's been a good time. No problems. Amazing. God, that, that is, you know, probably you've, you've probably, out of all the people I've ever spoke to, interviewed, that is probably the best way to leave a gig, actually. I leave, not the gig, but leave, to sort of call, um, yeah. you know, to, to sort of at that chapter anyway, because obviously several decades later, another chapter appears in... I yeah, think, we, we, we all went through that door because even Colin attended that final gig and so everyone of the band um, ended our... You know, ended the neurotics by walking out the same door on the same night. Yes. But as you say, the band weren't, wasn't going to leave me behind. I had no idea that um, I was, you know, prepared. I was realistic and prepared to walk out of there and the band, for the, for the band to disappear into the mists of time, as so many bands do. You know, music is being created all the time. Very difficult then your records have to be on a shelf to be sold and shelf um, real estate is very expensive to keep records on. Once you start touring, once you start not being stopped at all in the shops, then that was the end of you as a band. Now, I had no idea that uh, that the internet was going to come along and therefore the long tail, as it's known, as you know, when you've got downloadable things up on the internet, they don't take up shelf space. They mm. don't get in the way. People's music could be available for years and better distributed than it was previously. Which is fantastic. That was all to come. Yes, and have, and, you, and have you enjoyed, because obviously you sort of, um, it was like... 2006, 2008, you, you, re, you know, you got a reunion together and yeah. played at Yeah, 17 these... years, I think it was, we were apart. Yeah. yeah. And did it feel like, wow, we're doing this again, or you and two new members, and then eventually, obviously, Simon rejoined for a string of dates in 2015. So did it feel exciting to be doing it, you know, to dusting off the, uh, the lyric sheets and sort of relearning the songs? No, no, it wasn't exciting. I didn't want to do it. I wasn't interested in the idea at all. I'd spent 17 years doing other things. Uh, I'd, um, you know, I I'd, was exploring the world and doing things. I was getting into computers and stuff like that. I mean, I for, uh, for many years, I'd always wanted to avoid being a one-trick pony, I'd spent 10 years in a band, and um, and that was great. And I thought, well, what else can you go out and throw yourself into and get involved with that, that can take you somewhere else? You know, I want I want to be at the beginning of something else and, and go with that and see where that takes me. I want to take every opportunity in life um, and, and go with that. And I want to be, you know, I don't, I don't 
have any interest in the rock and roll cliche of I was born to rock. You know, this sort of thing, I was born to do this thing. Life isn't like that. You're born to do one thing or loads of things. And uh, and I felt that I'd done one thing and it was fantastic. Now I want to do another thing. So for 17 years, I was doing that. And the funny thing is, I did get my opportunity of being at the beginning of something because I was, I was, I, I, I noticed the opportunity of the internet right at the beginning. And so I got involved with that and I was getting really fascinated in uh, re remote networking and the, the, um, the sort of opportunities in the future that the, int the internet could create. Um, being on the ground level of it all, um, I, I just felt it was a, um, a fantastic opportunity. So I got involved with that and I ended up um, making a career for myself in, um, in uh, being a webmaster and, and, and doing, um, uh, being in charge of websites and developing websites, creating websites. Um, but one of the things I did notice about it was that all the work that you put into something that goes up online for people to look at is very ephemeral. It's sort of, it's here today, gone to, tomorrow. All the sweat and the hard work you put into developing a website and then a, a, a few months after that, then we want a new one. Everything gets dumped. There's new technology coming in, of course, but the, the actual creation and the visual representation that goes on screen is that it just ceases to exist when the next version of it comes up. When you're redoing someone's website, the original one, where is it? Well, you know, you, you might find it logged somewhere on Google. I don't know, but I notice the difference between that and actually putting the effort into making the song and recording something and the fact that it lasts a lot longer. And in fact, people enjoy it, you know, uh, as, a, as a real thing that they take to their hearts where people take, you know, websites are just where you get information. It's, it's not the same thing. Yes. And just... So kind of, we, yeah, go on. And I was just going to say, you know, obviously, yes, you, you know, it's kind of a weird world that, that, that were the ephemeral quality of those kind of things. But then, you know, like in 2015, you, you had a few dates with Simon and also that was the year that Colin passed away. Did that feel like quite another chapter that was... Um, well, it was 2006, I believe, um, and um, and I, I, there was a um, uh, a collection. Like there was a curated thing being done by a guy called Gordon who wanted to collect all of the music that was swirling around Harlow um, at the time because we was very creative in this town. There was loads of bands with loads of stuff coming out, and um, and um, and I was asked whether I, you know, would be interested in um, perhaps finding a couple of tracks that had not been released before for it. So I said, yeah, no, I'm fine with that. So I dug out a couple of tracks and that went on to this thing. And eventually when it was released and I got a copy of it, instead of it being some sort of um, half-assed attempt at putting a few tracks by local bands from the 80s together, it turned out to be this absolutely comprehensive gorgeously produced, massively investigated and, you know, and, and all in the right order and, you know, everybody was there and and it sort of 
put the history of the music scene in Harlow, you know, it, it all, all of that era together. And I was so pleased to be involved with it because it was like, it's uh, um, two, two CDs, three CDs, can't remember the time now. Um, I sort of popped my copy away and filed it, as it were. I've not had it out. I can't remember how many physical CDs it was, but it had a post, a huge poster in it and all manner of stuff, and everything was done correctly. It was really, really good. And I thought, Jesus, is that what all of us did around this area? This is really good output. Great bands as well. And um, so I was, I was dead pleased with it. And then... Then he come to me and he said, we're going to launch it at the square that then you've got in Harman. Um, and he said, we've got this idea, you know, to launch it, we're going to get together a group of bands who haven't played for 17 years who are, you know, who've got tracks on this album and do a gig with everyone. And I said, oh, a great idea. He said, would you like to be involved? He said, me? No. No, I don't want anything to do with it. He said, I thought you might get neurotic. I said, no, no. But, no, I don't want to do that. It's too much hard work and it's just not worth it. I don't want to put all that effort into it. And anyway, Colin's not well enough to do that. And we'd have to find another bass player. It's going to rehearsals. We have to do this, we have to do that. And at the end of it all, it's not a lot of time to get all that together and we're stand up on stage and everyone expects us to be the band that we were when we, we've, we, we uh, split. And in fact, what we'd be is a parallel imitation of that band because, you know, because we'd just be trying to pull these things together with someone new and, oh, man, no. Um, so I didn't want to do it. And um, and then a strange thing happened because after I said I didn't want to, I then realised that I would actually, my daughter, um, who was really young at the time, I thought, um, she'd seen us on VHS tapes, you know, doing live gigs and things. And she'd listen to our music. But I'd really like her to actually see us play live. So um, I thought, well, maybe there is a reason to do it because that'd be great to play in front of her. Um, actually, when we did do it, I mean, one of the gigs we did with her when she was really young, she just fell asleep <laughs> in a bush chair down the front, you know. But she, that wasn't the only time she did get to see us and be and enjoy us but you know one of the earliest ones where Tate rode her along and there she was fast asleep as I was playing on stage but um, the um, so there was I, I thought oh, she did do that you'd be able to do that you know I thought oh, no no it's, it's too much bother anyway Gordon come back to me afterwards and he said to me look it'd be great if you could do this um, he said you need to look at it a different way Look at it the reverse way around to the way you were looking at it. Uh, when you these recordings were made, when people were playing at the square and various places and making these recordings, um, all of those bands had just got together and were just learning to get their heads round and their hands round the fretboards and things. Um, getting their heads round, learning to play, and everybody just went into it with such enthusiasm and didn't really worry about how good musicians they were or how well they played it they just got up and did it don't you think that actually getting these bands together after 70 years and putting them on on stage at the square to um launch this uh, package this stalk beat package as it was known um 
don't you think that you know going up there and, and trying to get your heads around the songs you used to play all those years ago would be the very epitome of punk? Don't you think it would be rather similar to the times when you first started doing it? I mean, to my mind, he says it, it would be absolutely perfectly um, in tune with that. And I thought, once you'd said that, I thought, um, I understand that. I'm not talking to you. My phone's talking to me now. This is not, it's not all about you, you know. <laughs> Someone else now. <laughs> um, it was a you know, it's sort of, um, I thought he's got a point. He's got a point because um, yeah, it would be perfect. It would be the perfect punk thing to do. And it wouldn't matter. Oh, mm. So I said, yes. And um, in fact, no rehearsals were involved. Um, Simon, who's got a, a friend of his uh, who he's played, a, uh, played in bands a lot with in the past, and um, he got him together and said, do you want to do the gig? And he said, yes. Yeah. So he gave him, you know, a couple of CDs of ours and told him which ones we were playing on the night. And he was meant to listen to them and learn how to play them. So when we went up to do this reunion gig, none of us had rehearsed together. And that's, I took the idea that, that punk ethic idea and run with it. So I didn't bother about making sure we were super rehearsed. That's how we did it. Yes. So that must have been, yes, that was obviously the catalyst that um, got things kind of moving for a bit. Yeah, I mean, as we went to do the thing, I was terrified because, you know, I don't, it's been many a year. No, I don't think I'm, you know. But, I mean, even at the, right at the beginning of the band, we rehearsed before a gig. So doing one where we hadn't was like throwing my lot in with the whole idea of just doing it. Yes. The immediacy of it. Once I'd finished playing, I was cock-a-hoop. And after that, I rather wished I could do it again. And so it so began... Uh, uh, like a, a winkle being slowly eased out of the shell, the neurotics were always one gig away from calling it a day. Like, oh, we'll do another one. Oh, and we'll do another one. And we'll do another one. We'll do a couple, and then we'll call it here. I know we'll do a tour up until Rebellion, and then we'll call it a day. It went on like that for ages. And, and the guy at Rebellion, the book's Rebellion, was saying to me, Dad was saying to me, uh, I said, you better have us on next year because I can't tell you whether we'll be together anymore. And he goes, he said that last year. That's the way it went. So it was organic. And we didn't say, there was no, we're back. In fact, it's now that we're saying it because we've got a documentary on that's uh, coming out of uh, being premiered in uh, April next year. It's now we're saying we're back. Um, but the interesting thing was when we started playing again was that it turned out that we had more fans than when we split up because <laughs> people would buy had been hearing our music and buying our CDs for 17 years some young elements of the audience were like buying this stuff and thinking this is really shit because I love this band now and I'm never going to see them live because 
they split up in 88 and haven't played anything since. So they're obviously, it ain't going to happen ever. And a lot of people felt like that. And so when we reformed, we found the age, uh, the age of the audience was mixed. And a lot of people uh, was coming along to see us who'd never seen us before, but had been listening to our music for years. Yes, and did and did you sort of find because I I realised um, one of my slightly you know not hundred um, percent theories, but it's quite good. Yeah, yeah. Thirty years seems to be a passing of time where a lot of bands have suddenly looked back and thought, actually, it'd be quite nice to compile our stuff together. And there's been quite a lot of films that have been brought out very recently. There was one on the Chills, the mm-hmm. Go Betweens, the Wedding Present um, album, George Best, L L Seven, the Slits. Obviously, they're not all 30 years, but there is kind of this passing of time. And obviously, you've got a kick out, kick out the, neuro- the Newtown Neurotic story. So have you seen the film and um, thought that is a nice way to bookend it with possible, you know, added chapters? Well, no, I've not seen it. I don't know. Um, I've seen little bits of it, so I don't know it um, in its entirety. Um, and I don't know whether what I've been involved with so far has given me um, the much of an idea of how it's going to be. That can only be uh, found out really at the first showing of it, which isn't the premiere. The first showing of it is going to be to the band and various other people. And then we can discuss whether there are vital things that have accidentally been left out or there are things in there that really shouldn't be there or any other last-minute things we can say before it goes to the premiere. We haven't yeah. had that yet, so I don't know even that. Yes. Are you going to feel quite nervous when you go and watch this? It's like, this could go either way, sitting next to the... The, the director's going to feel very tense. Because I, I spoke to the guy who did the wedding present one, and he said, yeah. God, when he sat next to David Gedge all the way through it, who didn't move or didn't say anything or... You kept thinking, Jesus, what's he thinking? Is he going to get up and punch me? Or you know, and it was like, let's have a deep breath. What did you think of the film, David? <laughs> it was, a, and he was all right with it. But you know, there were some touchy bits, especially about the. Well, I think that happens with everyone, every director or producer, or any, you know, when, when you play the final thing, you're not going to get the um, um, the full um, effect if you were to discuss. At various parts while it's still going or stop it and start and say I really don't like that bit we'll have to get rid of that so really you have to sit through the whole thing with nobody saying anything so that the person the per- person or people that you know it's about ha- taking their thoughts while they're watching it so it leaves the director um, or whoever it is who's doing it um, to have to you know spend that time thinking you know I hope that they're liking this Yes. Especially the amount of work that's been put into it. Well, absolutely, no, and and probably looking where the exit is just in case he needs to run. But look, just lastly, because I'd better go and have some tea, um, just what would you kind of say to your, you know, your 18-year-old self or or that bit of wisdom that you've you've accumulated over the decades that you think, God, that's something that I've gathered from being on this earth that I would have liked to have said to my 18-year-old self or, you know, just that kind of little bit of, like, nugget of like you know read the contract or i don't know drink less sometimes people have i just wondered if you've got anything that you would think god there is one thing that i would definitely tell my younger self well my younger self i've already done that um 
because I went back in time. Uh, I'm not joking here. Um, I went back in time in a dream that I had. Um, and I was backstage at one of my own concerts. Um, and we were preparing to go on stage. And um, uh, once I, found, I waited until there was a moment where I, my other self had finished setting up because I knew just how much I didn't like being like um, have th have issues discussed with me while I'm trying to uh, uh, plug things in ready to go on stage. And I found a moment where everything I'd done everything and there was a pause before we actually took the stage and I walked up to myself and tapped myself on the shoulder and um, uh, I turned round and I said uh, to myself, look, uh, I understand you, you, you've got to go on stage in a minute, so um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I just wanted to come up to you and say, don't worry, it's all going to be all right. And uh, I said back to myself, oh, cheers, like that, and then I had to go on stage. So within the dream world, I'd already not exactly pearls of wisdom, not gems, but I just reassured myself that, you know, not to worry about things too much. It's going to be all right. Just that reassurance. Yes. As far as as far as uh, pearls of wisdom for anyone other than me, um, you know, it's just uh, you need to have something that you believe in and you need to make it the thing that you live your life around. You know that um, something that that um, gives meaning to you, and one of the things I've always found is the greatest thing to 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 live with in life is music and being able to play it, and you, that can express so much of the things that you need to get out into the world that the feedback from it enriches you. And I found what I did was. And this is the thing about taking up an instrument when you're young, is that you mature around it, because it actually it makes you it, it makes you a different person. It makes you a more emphatic person, um, and then you start learning the mercurial arts of creating something and making the air vibrate with it, going out into an audience and you become connected with them as they become connected with you. There's some special kind of magic that goes on there that, um, that has never been um, defined by science. Oh yeah, the airwaves moving, sure. But the connection that the audience makes with people on stage, I felt it with bands I went to see in the late 60s, put, it made the hairs on the back of my neck go up. It was so relevant and so exciting and in the moment that I'd never had that sort of exhilaration from from uh, drugs or booze or anything. You know, it was like nothing else. And then when I got the opportunity to do the same to other people, there's nothing better than that. And yeah. beyond that, beyond that, um, it has made me who I am, not not 
as a musician, but as a person, um, uh, it, I grew around the instrument and it grew around me and we become one. Yes. My God. I think that's, that, that is a good place to leave it. Well, look, Steve, sorry to, um, yeah, that's fantastic. That's, um, and now, now, even now, right, I, I've, um, music has been something that um, has allowed me to have my first meaningful Skype session. How about that? I know. This is, this is true. <laughs> I mean, I know. You're, never too, you're never too old to log into Skype. Yes, that's right. But yeah. actually, now you've done it, you know, next time someone says it, you'll go, yep, and you, go, and you have that magical little tune that plays, and you think, God, we're doing it. I'm not in a phone box with two pieces going, oh, God. Oh, yes, I know that one. Yeah. Thinking, God, oh, just keep the door open. That's how out. I started booking our first gigs. I know. <laughs> in a public phone box. We didn't even have a phone. No, I know. So many. I know. There were some classic stories I've had from people who, you know, haven't run to the phone box to this sort of, I don't know. I know Tracy Thorne from Everything But The Girl, which yeah. she, she had to go to a phone box to... You know, because Paul Weller was going to phone to say, you know, could you come down and do some backing vocals or play a gig for us, you know? And it was like, bloody hell, yeah, that's... Yes, that did happen, and there you were, you know, when you were a student in Hull University, you know, going to the phone box for Paul Weller. It was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what no, we did. To, that, that's what we it, did. <laughs> you know, I used to play a lot of Tracy Fawn in those days. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, I tried to, you know, tried to buy my first Les Paul uh, copy... Um, from a guy who said he wanted to sell it and I was going out to the phone box every five minutes trying to get hold of him um, and I, I was really doing my head in, in being in a queue for each time to, to get to ring him and then not getting hold of him and then when I did get hold of him he said I've changed my mind <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, not going to sell it now he said that was that yes. I'd forgot about the queue at the phone box yes I'd um, yeah when someone was there and you think oh shh and you, you know, you couldn't really say, "Are you going to be long?" But you know, you were no, uh, you know, if you got there and there was no one there, it was like, "Wow, this never happens." Yeah, no, it's cool. Oh, look, Steve, I better go because um, yeah, all right. I, I, but look, this is great. And when I put this out, I'll send you a link to it via your yeah. email address, and then you can do what you like. But that's fine. That's great. Well, thank you. I really appreciate no that. And um, loved your music. Still do. It's still Thanks, there. Man. It's great. Take care and have a lovely evening. And you, yeah, best of luck. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.